You'll notice we are in part 24 of the book of Isaiah series called the Wake Up series. And uh, I entitled it, Awaken to the Power of Humility. So God thought he would take that an extra notch this morning and just go, really? Well, watch this. This is intriguing. So uh, uh, living it out right here before you. It's hard to, hard to be uh, super confident when you know that you can go down at any time. Uh, I want you to know that as we go through a little just over 50 verses today, that I periodically skip ahead and you're going to go, wait a second, you just, you just missed something. There was, there was something awesome you could have taught on right there and you, you jumped ahead. What are you doing? Well, here's how I teach long prophetic books. When they were originally written down, they would be written in pieces like in scrolls, but long pieces. They were to be read all at once. So therefore you would kind of have a repetitive hit to drive home an emotional point. Well, we have stretched it out into what's going to be already seven months going on nine months of a series. And so when we repeat, it feels like a whole week of repeating one after the other. So I'm going to be skipping past the portions we've already taught on and I've already driven into the ground. If I skip something, you go, that was great. You can get the podcast. It was on one beforehand. So you can go kind of join with us on that. In the last two weeks, we have been spoiled with this oasis of blessing. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, was referred to by Isaiah 700 years before he came around. And we got to see this incredible description of the cross and, and what Jesus bought for us and how the Messiah would come and save us from our sins. And then last week, we got a chance to respond to that invitation. Uh, this incredible invitation of God saying, listen, there is no sin that you are involved in that I cannot reach you out of. There is no depth I cannot pull you from. There is no weakness I cannot sustain you through. And he had this beautiful invitation. So here in the service, we did that, right? We had an opportunity to respond to the Lord and commit our lives to the Lord. Last weekend, 57 people responded to that call and they came up. Amen. We have been praying for you. Uh, you know, the enemy tries to pick on the little guys. So as you're brand new in the Lord, it's kind of this, all this doubt floods in, floods in and you feel like it was that real. Was that legit? I need to tell you, Jesus Christ did a miracle in your life last weekend and it's real legitimate. And I want you to continue to walk with God. Don't walk away. We are here for you. We're here to back you up to pray for you and protect you. So I'm super excited about that. But remember, that was an oasis in the middle of God revealing judgment upon Israel. They had wandered so far away, they had gone so far from the heart of God, that he needed to bring in the Babylonian nation to wipe them out. In 720 BC, the Babylonian invasion hit and decimated the rest of Israel and took them captive and took them away out of their land. Throughout all this terror and storming and attacking and, and the bad guys winning, Israel was lost. And God said, this is not an accident. I've been trying to get your attention. I want you to know that I'm your problem. I'm wrecking your life because I need you to see me. I want to get back to blessing. But as long as you rebel, I'm not going to affirm that. You have broken my covenant and I need to restore you. But I must do so through challenge and difficulty. Some of us are here because we, God's trying to get our attention, right? 
And, and so many things have been going on in our lives and we just think, man, I just get all the bad breaks. Maybe Job did nothing wrong. Job was one of the most righteous men in the world and his life fell apart. It had nothing to do with judgment. But there are some of us that God is disciplining, trying to get us to pay attention to him. And we've been ignoring him. And no matter how much stuff goes on in our lives, we're not looking his direction. So if that is you today, trust me, God's going to get a message across to you. I've been doing some writing lately. And I do a lot of writing. I actually have 22 different projects in the works because I'm totally ADD. So every time I start a project, it's awesome. And then I move to the next one and I can't seem to complete anything. So one of the, one of the, uh, writings that I've been working on is the idea that in this grand scheme of life, we are like in a large movie and we are not the central character. And if we think we are the central character, everything is askew. The story doesn't work. It falls apart. And I realized this simplistic phrase of it's not about me, it's not about you, makes sense of everything in our reality. For example, suffering doesn't make sense if the story's about you, then it's a tragedy. But if the story's not about you, how does that enhance the storyline? Let me give you a total nerd example. I know, here we go. Spider-Man. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? All right, yeah, three people are with me. This is how Spider-Man stories go, all right? As a comic book fan, here's how Spider-Man goes. Bank robber comes in, holds the young girl at gunpoint, demands all the money, everybody's scared, Spider-Man comes flying in, beats up the bad guy, puts him in jail. We all go, yay, that is a heroic, fantastic story. Look how awesome Spider-Man is. What if the story's about the girl behind the counter? Do you understand? It suddenly goes from heroic to tragedy. Have you ever been held up at gunpoint, feared for your life in your job? Now that girl's in trauma counseling, laying down on a couch talking about her mother, (laughs) trying to heal up. From all this stuff. That's not an awesome story. That's a dismal story, right? But if we're focused on the main character, she was a foil by which he was demonstrated as heroic. In this scheme of life, we don't understand what happens to us. We ask the question, why? Almost all questions, why, mean we've somehow slipped out of being Jesus being the main character. We've somehow slipped into making us a main character and the story altered and we said it doesn't look good. Something's not right here. The Bible says that we were built, designed, and empowered for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it for his storyline because it's not about you. It never was. Consider the story of Job. The story's not about Job. Job doesn't do anything in the story except cry. Oh, well, there's these dialogues of him suffering. 
awesome. That's not a great story, but the story isn't about Job. The story is about God. God initiates. God gets Satan's attention. God's the one that gets him on Job. He tears Job apart. Job loses everything. You go, well, in the end, he got it back. He got more kids. He didn't get replacement kids. Do you understand? It's not the same. The story of Job is a tragedy if it's about Job, but it was never about Job. It was always about the glory of God. And you go, what good did God get out of that? Check this out. God is dialoguing with who? Satan. Satan used to be who? Lucifer, the pinnacle of God's creation. This is how God can look at him and this is what he would say. Hey, Lucifer, you're looking good today. Yeah, you know I am. I need you to understand something. You saw me in all my glory. You were my right-hand man. You hovered before my throne. Through you, I began to run creation. You knew all of me, all of my power. You saw who I am. You felt my love with no hindrance, and you walked away from me. See that little guy down there? He doesn't even know if I'm real. Watch this. You want to see what love is? You want to see what dedication is? You want to see what it's like for someone whose heart is sold out to me? That doesn't even know if I'm real? Can't see me? Barely hears me? He'll stick with me. Go ahead, have at him. Watch what happens. It'll embarrass you. And as all the angels looked on, Job did nothing but say, yes, God, while he cried. Is that glorifying to God? It is. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Humility is expected of God's children. Humility is expected of God's children. Why? Because it only makes sense. If the story is not about you, how can you get cocky about it? If the story is not about you, why are you constantly thinking of yourself? If the story is not about you... Shouldn't we have a different perspective of life? Humility makes sense. Anything otherwise is absurd. My favorite definition of humility is this. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking less about yourself. Here's my problem with people that try to be humble. They degrade themselves. That is not helpful, nor is it honoring to God. God, what you made in me was garbage. God, what uh, everything about me that's wrong, all the things that make me feel terrible about myself, you screwed up. God, you're a terrible shepherd. God, you're a... Te- Do you understand what you're doing? Don't degrade yourself. If God built something beautiful in you, if God gave you gifts, if God gave you talents, if God gave you extraordinary abilities, praise God for them and then think about something else. You know what I mean? Think about someone else. That it's, it's not about you. Israel did not know this. They had lost the big picture perspective and kept thinking it was all about them. And when it's all about you, this life, you scramble to grab all you can. Because if you're the central part of the story, everyone and everything else is for your benefit. But if it's about God, it's not about your accumulation. It's about your glorification of him. This life is very different than the next life. 
This life is not built for satisfaction. This life is built to make a point. We have a very short one and we jump into the next one and the next one's eternal. And that one is about having joy. In this life, God is glorified by challenge. In the next life, God is glorified by blessing. Just know what life you're living and where you're at. And suddenly reality makes more sense. Israel had lost this view and vision. And God was bringing judgment on them. But make no mistake, he had this future for them. He knew that he was going to get them somewhere beautiful. And he was going to do it through his own power. Turn with me to Isaiah 55 verse 10. Isaiah 55 10. And the Bible's under the seat in front of you. It is page 617 or thereabouts. Uh, maybe 615. Uh, we'll see. It begins like this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That is a promise of God saying, I'm in control and no obstacle can get in my way. No one can shut me down. If I tell you, I will come and restore you in time. I will come and restore you in time. Nothing is going to get in the way of that. But meanwhile, while you're still in trouble... Chapter 56, verse 1, thus says the Lord, here's what I want you to do. Pay attention, he said. I've got words for you. Keep justice. That means be fair and right with each other. Do righteousness, do good and godly things as commanded by the Lord. For soon my salvation will come, my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. The son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, ignoring it, dishonoring it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let me remind you, we are reading 2,700-year-old male of the ancient east of Israel. Israel had a special promise and contract that God set up with them. We refer to it as the Old Covenant. Just kind of a fancy word for the contract that used to be up. The contract with Israel was very simple. It was for all of you that don't like fancy things. Here's how it goes. Do good stuff, you get blessed. Do bad stuff, you get cursed. Any questions? It's not rocket science. We're being super basic here. I'm going to use you as a drama to show the world what I'm doing. I want to show the whole world what I'm like. I want to show the world what I desire. I'm going to use you as a little TV show here in the world. Let's throw up the map on the screen. Israel is not very big. As a matter of fact, Israel is about the size of California in the sense that you, if we could superimpose it over the map, you're going to find out it's not big at all. It's this little tiny place in the Middle East around all nations that tend to be bigger than it. And in the grand scheme of the world, it's just a dot. And yet through that, God has transformed the entire face of the planet. 
the Bible goes out of its way to remind you that God uses things that no one else cares about. If you are ever a person that feels discarded by society, feels like you're no big deal, feel like you can never make a difference, you're perfect for God to use. He will go out of his way to touch and use all the things that everyone else left behind. The greatest king of Israel, where did God find him? In the sheep pasture whose dad didn't even think he was good enough to put him in the lineup. The greatest king of Israel. Really? God sees you. Isaiah is busy having this crazy life where he's saying all these messages that no one seems to like. Everyone dislikes him every time he opens his mouth. He's writing down these scrolls back in his room, assuming no one's ever going to really read them. He doesn't know that it's going to be one of the longest books in the entire Bible. And even all these years, 2,700 years later, we're all astounded at what God revealed to him. He didn't know he was a big deal. You don't know you're a big deal either. But God gives his spirit and empowers jars of clay to bring about his glory. I know it feels like you're just being faithful in a tiny little corner. But God utilizes that for great things. Verse 3. Let me give you the setup on this. Israel is going to be in captivity. And as they're in captivity, everything's equal. When you're a slave, there's no like higher slaves, lower slaves. You're a slave or you're not a slave. And the Israelites were slaves to the Babylonians. And the, it was everything was level set. And it kind of created a whole new groove. It wasn't happy. It wasn't necessarily joyful. But at least everybody knew where they stood. When we start talking about restoration back into Israel, when we talk about rebuilding Jerusalem through Nehemiah and Ezra, when we start talking about let's go back to the way things were, two groups are going to freak out about that. The first one is here. Verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. If you're a Gentile, a non-Jew, and you're an outsider, when you're all in captivity, they consider you a Jew, and they treat you like the rest of the Jews. But when everyone goes back home, guess what? You're now second-class citizen guy. Now you are the, oh, you're a convert immediately the status that went flat now goes back into a hierarchy and they're going great now i great now i can't even go in the temple they never let gentiles in the temple now i'm not going to be able to worship god like i used to and and i'm going to be removed god don't forget me the other group is this and let not the eunuch say behold i am a dry tree y'all know what a eunuch is a eunuch is a man that's been castrated. I have some photos. Why don't we... Th no, I don't really. <laughs> Just wondering. Um. Uh, what was best is everyone that looked to the screen. Like, <laughs> really? <laughs> this church is hardcore. <laughs> we believe in Bible accuracy. You know what I'm saying? Uh a eunuch is a man that has been castrated. Uh, he has no ability to reproduce anymore. All that has been removed in him. And you can imagine that uh, a, a eunuch's main concern in being in Israel is they're really big on genealogy. 
Oh, look, they're everywhere. Oh, every time you go to the synagogue, everyone has to talk about we're children of Abraham. And have you ever heard about my lineage? And I belong to this tribe. And this is my family line. And they all look at you. And you got nothing. As much as it was brutal for women to be barren and they felt cursed in the ancient world when they couldn't have children, so too did the men. The men ended up feeling like everything stops with me. I will never have my children and grandchildren tell of the story of me. And you look and you go, man, what a, what a difficult life to have. Why would they castrate some of the men in captivity? Because if they were ever going to work in the palace, they didn't want them having children that would mix the race within their royalty. So anyone that got on the inside or got a good job in the royalty, they were all castrated. Four of the most famous eunuchs in the entire Bible are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You never think about Daniel in the lion's den as being a eunuch, but he was. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Estimated average 14 to 16 years old. Three boys say, I'm not bowing down to your God. I don't care if you burn me alive. They threw them into the fiery furnace, and there they walked with Jesus. They didn't know they were going to survive it. They said, I don't know if I'm going to burn alive or not. All I'm telling you is this. I will not bow down before your God. If there was any four men that you would want to be daddies, is it not those four guys? I mean, come on. How awesome is that story to your kids? Everything that happens to them. Really, kids? When I was your age, I got burned alive. (laughs) Do your homework. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Go talk to Uncle Daniel. Right? Hey, when I was your age, I was thrown in the lion's den. Man, it was rough when you guys were young. You know what I mean? Uh, It's just every story time is awesome. Right? They're never going to have children. So when they go back into lineage land, they feel like second-class citizens. So check this out. God says, listen, I know you think that you're going to be forgotten. I know that you think that everything is going to go wrong for you. I want to tell you this. I see you. Watch this. For thus says the Lord, verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, in other words, to the faithful in heart, verse 6, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, those who follow me, I will bring to my holy mountain where I dwell, where I share my mysteries with my kids, and I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples the lord god who gathers the outcasts of israel declares i will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered god said if i tell you you're my people you're my people Do you remember that Jesus quoted this, that my house will be a house of prayer? That's one of the reasons why we have incorporated prayer so much into our services. Prayer means communication with God. If there's no communication with God, there is no life. My house will be called a house of prayer, but it will be for all peoples, not just for the religious fancy. It is not just going to be for the wealthy. It is not just going to be for the amazing. It's going to be for the everybody. We have these haves and have-nots. And Jesus looks down and spent all his time with a down and out. Says this, verse 9. All you beasts of the field, come to devour. 
judgment time. In ancient literature, beasts, wild beasts, were enemy nations. So he said, Babylon, come on, let's do this. Bring it. Come on in and wipe out my people. They are in, they're in punishment time. And you look and you go, man, God seems so upset. God is upset. You're going to find out why. Verse 10. His, meaning the man of Israel, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They're clueless. They are silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. They're like an asleep guard dog. It's not beneficial. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They don't get the bigger picture. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all, everyone. Come, join me in my way of living, they say. Let's get wine. Let's fill ourselves with strong drink. Tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. You know the problem with Israel? Its leadership was messed up. If God was even going to try to re-rack them, he can't even work through the current leadership structure. Who did Jesus get most ticked off at here on earth? The Pharisees, the religious leadership. Why? Because they're making everything worse for everyone else. It wasn't the sinners that are messing up. It wasn't the weak that are all screwed up. That's not who Jesus was mad at. Who Jesus was mad at was all the leadership that were selfish. That's who he went after. Side note, these are called tangents. You know God's real problem with getting drunk? I, I get this question a lot about alcohol and everything and how does God feel about this. And, and it's funny because so many people have a really weird view of what's wrong with alcohol. Oh, you can't get drunk. You know, if you get drunk, then... And they like, there's spiritual poison in there. And there's, you know, demons will enter your body. I mean, they have the, all kinds of weird ideas. Here's the problem. Not only does it destroy you, but here's the problem with getting drunk. You're no use to God. I mean, we try to make it about something fancier. In God's storyline, you're no longer useful because it's self-indulgent. It's, I'm going to check out. I don't care about anybody else. This is me time. So God, if you want me, I'm not available. That's actually the offensive part about it. Now, here's what is striking for all the rest of us. There's a whole bunch of us that are repulsed by drunkenness, but we haven't been available to the Lord for the last 32 years. If you are not open to saying, God, use me, I'm ready right now. Then I'm not quite sure why you're so upset at the other group. It says this. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. 57.1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. You know what this means? Their culture had become so secularized that righteous men are no longer cool. I would suggest that very similar things have happened in our society. Here's the reality. There are some people that are so focused on Jesus, they're dorky. <laughs> and let's call it what it is, yeah? They're totally focused on Jesus. They're totally interested in his will for their life. They're not caught up in all the fashion. They're not doing all the things that everybody else does. They're not worried about trying to make sure they look good and be this way. And are they super successful at this? And they're not playing all the games that everybody else is. So they get sidelined out as awkward and dorky and they're cast aside. If indeed we truly saw things from God's perspective, we might have a different picture. 
If we began to evaluate people on, hey, who can I contact that will intercede for me and God will hear their prayers? Oh, whole different ball game, yeah? Or who can I look at who is pure in heart? Oh, look, now we have a whole other ball game. You see what I mean? We have somehow let it go askew where we do not value what God values. We value everything else. But you, Israel, verse 3, listen up. I'm going to read off your atrocities and the reasons why I'm disciplining you. Draw near, you sons of the sorceress. That's witchcraft. You offspring of the adulterer. That's male. And the loose women, that's the females. Verse 4, are you not children of transgression? You are of those that cross the line of God. The offspring of deceit, the, you are of your father of lies. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree. That's a pagan fertility rite, which I'll refer to in a moment. Who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Whenever God wanted to talk about how low Israel had fallen, he brings up their most embarrassing trait. Under two kings, they worshipped the demon Chemosh or Molech. Molech was a god that you would worship through child sacrifice, and here's how it worked. And they did it in Israel, in Yahweh's backyard. The way that it would work is you go up to the statue and they were overhanging. They would do it down in the valleys and there was an overhanging rocky crag over the top. That's why it was referring to it that way. They would do it in a certain area. And you would go down and there was a statue. I'll turn sideways. There was a statue of Molech that was just stone or what have you in metal. And it would hold out its hand and there was a plate across the top. You build a fire underneath, heat up the plate as hot as you can get it, and then place your newborn child and singe it and burn it alive. Israel did that to a God, to a demon, to an idol. Look at God's next line. Shall I relent for these things? Verse 6. You think I'm going to let that go? You think I'm all right with that? You think I'm not going to react off that? No, you want to know why you're in discipline? It's for stuff like this. Do you see how far you have fallen? It's not even just that. Check this out. Verse 7. On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed, you've gone up to it, you've made it wide, and you've made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, you have looked on nakedness. What you are just reading about is spiritual adultery. Through idolatry, and God is using words that are incredibly graphic, and here's why. The Jews do not talk about sex in writing. They always go around and explain it in different euphemisms. That's what you just read. When you read it from a Jewish mindset, it makes a sailor blush, right? That's kind of the point. It's super extreme because what Israel did is up on their high places, meaning anywhere there was a mountaintop or a hilltop, because the higher you are, the closer you are to the gods, right? They would go up on these high places and they would worship fertility gods and goddesses. If you wanted more kids, if you wanted your crops to be vibrant and abundant, if you wanted more money, if you wanted more of anything, you thought of having something, having a child. That tied into the fertility piece. And they would go up there and they would worship in the pagan way. The pagan way to worship a fertility god was to have sex. 
And as a matter of fact, the more people you could do it with all during your worship service, if you didn't have a partner, you rented a partner. That's where temple prostitutes came from. They would do all this on the mountain of God. And he's supposed to let it go. You cheated on me in my own bed. No, I'm not letting it go. That's not going to happen. You journeyed to the king. That's a reference to Molech. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes for idol worship. You sent your envoys far off and sent them even down to the underworld, Sheol, to worship there. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. He said, man, you're really good at sinning. Even when it got exhausting, you kept going. And then you tried to re-rack and, hey, let's try to sin some more. Have you ever thought about how much sin costs and how much we're willing to pay? Sin ravages our life and we'll keep doing it. You would think we would only want to do that which makes us feel better. And yet, oddly enough, even when sin burns us, we carry on. Hmm. Something's not right about that. Verse 11. What, have I not held my peace? Even for a long time? And you do not fear me. Even when I'm patient and I let you try to figure it out and find yourself, you still don't love me. If I back off from you, if I let you have a little bit of space, you don't turn around. I will declare your righteousness. You think that you're so good and religious. I will declare your deeds. They will not profit you. When you cry out in your misery, hey, let your collection of idols deliver you. That's called sarcasm. <laughs> the wind can carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. This is that sheer frustration of God saying, you're not listening to me. Look at verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Where's that? The heavens? The other dimensions of God? The place we cannot reach? The place that even angels don't know the full depths of? God dwells up there. Remember in chapter 6, Isaiah saw, said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And God said, I dwell in the highest, most majestic place that you could ever dream or imagine. And you know where else I live? Look at the next line. I also live with him who is humble and lowly in spirit, brokenhearted, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. I was reading a book recently and he and it was talking about how to get near God and he said is it any accident that of Moses it was said I don't even speak to him like I speak to the other prophets I speak with him face to face like a friend and yet Moses was defined quote the most humble man on the face of the earth was that an accident if you want to hear God be humble if you want to hear God, acknowledge it's about him and not you. If you want to be humble, then you get the blessing of the presence of God. 
We have such a craving, I would hope, to hear God's voice and be near God and learn from Him and grow with Him. But while we're the center of our world, there's no point in Him talking. For I will not contend forever, verse 16. Hey, Isaiah, in chapter 6, you asked me how long I was going to be angry with Israel. I got an answer for you. Not forever. I will not fight with them forever, nor will I always be angry. Verse 17. But I want to tell you why I am angry. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. Yeah, I struck him. I hid my face and I was angry. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. So if I walk away from him, he ignores me. If I rebuke him, he ignores me. I can't get his attention. Israel is against me. They're not listening. I have to go to such extreme measures. Their sin is so wicked. Their sin is so dark. They're burning their children alive. They're doing spiritual adultery in my holy places. I see it. Look at the next phrase. I have seen his ways. But I will heal him. God is so much bigger than our sin, you guys. I mean, yeah, he sees you for the creepy wickedness and darkness in your heart. And guess what? He loves you. That's craziness. Why? Because he's not reacting off you in the same way people react off you. He's so much more mature than that. I've seen his ways. But I'll heal him. I will lead him and I will restore comfort to him. Verse 20. But for those that continue on. For the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. A poet once wrote on his album cover, there's no rest for the wicked. Only a few of you know that's Ozzy Osbourne. All right, moving on. A lot of people sit across from me throughout the years when I was doing a lot of counseling and they would refer to people that had hurt them and then they got away with it. Their life was awesome. They got to go off and be with so-and-so and everything was great for them and, and it seemed like everything was blessing for them and I'm the one hurting. I'm the one that's been devastated. I'm the only one that's been hurt here and I always remind them of this concept. When you have done wrong against the Lord or against another person, you don't just get away with it. The weight of guilt upon your chest at night is crushing. Nobody just walks away. one. Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to raise your voice, cry, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people what they're doing wrong. This is not an accident. This is not just me on a bad day. This is not me not getting it. This is me rebuking you. This is me disciplining you. This is me getting in your face because the way you're acting is unacceptable. And they keep trying to hide in their religiosity, verse 2. They seek me daily and they delight to know my ways. You know what that means? All the Pharisees were pumped to go to synagogue. Why? More information, more information. Academic, academic, academic. I can do all the Bible trivia. I know everything about all the bits and pieces. And they didn't even know God, nor receive his voice. 
They love hanging out with me. They love going to church. They love the religion concept. It's as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. Oh God, what do you think? You don't want to know what I think. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? They cry out and you don't even pay attention. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Man, we're being so religious down here. We're being such good people. God, you're ignoring us. What? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppress all your workers. Verse 4, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. I've always been stunned at people that are drawn to religion. It is so not my personality. My personality is totally, let's be free, let's have fun, let's go crazy, let's be spontaneous. I can't stand ritual. I can't, it, does, it just bugs me. And yet there are certain personalities that absolutely crave structure. They love ritual. They love, tell me to do A, B, C, and D. I can do that. Uh, it's black and white. Let me know what is good. Show me what priest I go to. Show me how many times I pray. Tell me this. Tell me that. I need to know exactly what I'm doing. And they are drawn towards the high religions. Is that you? Those were the Pharisees as well. They love that because they were good at it. And they loved the idea that they could get their arms around the system and they didn't have to do all this elusive, well, I don't know, you know, it's relational, it's relational. Relationships are messy. Just tell me what I need to do. But God is a relationship and you don't get to do that. Verse five, is such the fast that I choose? Meaning, is this really what you think I want? Just a person to humble himself? Well, sure. I do, but not just on the outside. Is it to bow his head down like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Well, yeah, but for the right reasons. What Are you going to call this a fast and, and a day acceptable to the Lord? If you did and were honest, that would be awesome. I don't think you are. Is not the kind of fast that I want to loose the bonds of wickedness, to let the oppressed go, verse 7, is it not to share the bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You know what kind of fast I want, God said? How about doing right things, and quit being a jerk to everybody? <clears throat> By the way, at this time in history, the Jews only had one mandatory fast, the Day of Atonement. Later on in history, they added all the other ones that we know about today. They only had one. And on the Day of Atonement, it would cycle along with the year of Jubilee. That is likely what he's referring to. That was the time when all of Israel was supposed to let go of all their slaves, re-rack everything, take extra tithes and offerings to give to the poor, take care of their neighbors, and it was supposed to be one big year of loving on everybody and making it equal. But who likes that year? The down and out. Certainly not the wealthy. And they wouldn't do it. He said, if you want to tell, if you want to know what makes me happy, how about doing what I asked you to do? I, I get all your little religious, oh, you're going to church, you're doing your devotions. Oh, I get that you're, you're singing super loud and... You know what? It's really cute. And don't get me wrong. If your heart was right, it would be awesome. But you just like the game. You don't even care about me. If you do these things, remember old covenant, 
do good stuff, awesome, bad stuff, bad. If you do that, verse 8, then your light will break forth like dawn and your healing will spring up speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry out and he will say, here I am. In August, we are kicking off a 40-day fast as a church like we do whenever we do any healing worship and prayer nights. Because we want to seek God's face and get focused in on what God wants. We want to see him move in our midst. We're, we're joining this year with a rock and having them come and be a part of it with us. And so we can kind of have that unity factor in one big body. And, and we're doing a 40 day fast. And the way that we normally do it, and we're going to do it like that again, is to remove something that distracts you from God or something maybe that just captures your attention. And in honor of him, you're going to remove that for 40 days. It could be sin issues that you're wrestling with. It can be something good. Right? It could be, hey, I gotta get rid of coffee because that's my go-to thing. I love it. And I, every day I'm going to Starbucks. Well, for 40 days, you're gonna go, in honor of you, Lord, I'm not doing that. And then every Wednesday, as a church, we fast from food. Now that could be for you one meal, it could be two meals, it could be the whole day, whatever works for you. You gotta be careful with your body. But we fast together and we use all this time for prayer. But this year we're adding an element. And the element is this. For 40 days, I want you to do something that is honoring to God. It could be as simple as for 40 days, I'm going to write a card, a note card to another Christian to build them up. I'm going to write a letter to a missionary once every day. Uh, For 40 days, I'm going to say Jesus loves you to someone that I do not know for 40 days. I'm going to spread the gospel. I'm going to be loving. I'm going to do something that is justice-based. I'm going to do... We add something, whatever that is for you, we are going to add that in to our fast based on this passage. What kind of fast does God like? How about doing stuff that he likes? 